the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. A year into Russia's attempt to invade Ukraine, what are the consequences for people in the region as well as those who have fled? And what is the prospect for a return to a peaceful, if tense, coexistence? We're going to dive into the Ukraine war on the heels of President Biden's surprise visit to the region. And we'll talk with Metro Detroiters who have ties to that part of the world. That's all next on Detroit Today. But right now, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. Tomorrow will mark a pretty grim one-year anniversary on the planet. It will be a year since Russia decided to invade Ukraine following Vladimir Putin's annexation of the Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula back in 2014. Now, when this occurred last year, it seemed almost unthinkable, a land war. In Europe, many thought this was exactly what the European Union and NATO were created to prevent. And still, when Russian President Putin did invade and attempt to take Kyiv almost a full year ago, for many it seemed like a foregone conclusion that Russia would succeed. Ukraine has one-tenth of Russia's GDP and less than one-third of its population. This was an epic mismatch, at least on paper, from the beginning. And still, Ukraine has been able to repel Russia from its capital and continues to fight to this day to maintain its independence. In a surprise move, President Joe Biden traveled to Ukraine on Monday as part of a three-day diplomatic trip where he pledged continued support for the country. We know that there'll be very difficult days and weeks and years ahead, but Russia's aim was to wipe Ukraine off the map. Putin's war of conquest is failing. You and all Ukrainians, Mr. President, remind the world every single day what the meaning of the word courage is. Remind us that freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for, for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. Okay, so a real show of force by our president going to the region close to the date of the anniversary and talking pretty tough about our resolve. President Putin had his own show of strength this week, though. He met with China's top diplomat at the Kremlin, while also stating that Russia is going to be, quote, suspending its participation with the last remaining nuclear arms treaty between our country and theirs. That was set to expire 
in 2026. This occurred, as U.S. intelligence suggests, China is really considering providing arms and ammunition to Russia, which would really escalate the tensions between the United States, of course, and Russia. While Ukraine has relied on America and Western assistance with lethal aid, Russia has looked to countries like China and Iran to avoid the effects that economic sanctions have had on their ability to produce weapons and munitions that they need for the war. So one year in, where do we stand in this land war between Russia and Ukraine in Europe? How have things changed for all of the parties involved? Is it possible for Ukraine to prevail and retake its independence and its territory? Or does U.S. support of the country risk uniting two of our biggest geopolitical rivals in China and Russia? And how would that affect us here in America? These are questions swirling all around this one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. A little later, we're going to take a look at how the war continues to affect Ukrainians in America, as well as whether or not sanctions should be used in this conflict to put pressure on Russia. But first, we're joined by Vox senior foreign policy writer Jonathan Geyer, who recently wrote about this conflict. Jonathan, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. So catch us up. Where are we now? Almost a year to the day from Russia's attempt to take Kiev and uh, occupy Ukraine. Well, I think you've really summed it up. We were all shocked by the immense bravery and strength of Ukrainians. And a year later, it's sort of miraculous, but Ukraine and Russia are at a semi-stalemate. And that's in large thanks due to the almost $30 billion of weapons the United States has sent Ukraine, Mm -hmm. uh, the huge support the United States and NATO has provided, the kind of major mess-ups on the Russian military side and I think all of this was on display this week in these kind of split-screen speeches. You had uh, President Joe Biden giving a huge rally in Warsaw, Poland, thousands of people, kind of funky Euro-trash music playing. He frames this war as a fight between democracy and autocracy. And then you had Vladimir Putin giving a rambling two-hour speech in Moscow pulling out of, you know, the last diplomatic agreement, the nuclear agreement, the new start between the United States and Russia, which kind of reminds everybody that the stakes of this war are not just uh, about the future of Ukraine, but actually about the future of the world. And we're returning to this moment where nuclear powers are really on edge. So each side is doubling down Mm -hmm. a year on. And Unfortunately, tragically, especially for the people of Ukraine, for Russians living under Russian tyranny, and for everyone else being affected by energy prices, food prices, all these really negative effects of the war, the war has no end in sight, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, you you wrote that this week. Um, um, But also, there is this question about China, which kind of lurks in the background Uh, of this. And the United States, of course, believes that China has been providing some non-lethal aid to Russia uh, already. And the the rhetoric around this suggests that that could escalate and maybe soon talk about why that uh, enhances the tensions here and why we should be more concerned about China getting involved. 
you've put your finger on the biggest issue here, which is everyone in the national security community in Washington is worried about China as a threat in the long term. And the Russia war right now has sort of become a sideshow to this. It's sapping U.S. weapons, U.S. supply chain, U.S. diplomatic energy. But really, everyone's focused on how to counter China's global influence. And, you know, going back to Richard Nixon, U.S. policy has been just make sure that Russia and China are not on the same side. And frankly, I think President Xi of China has looked at this invasion for Russia. It's gone pretty badly, uh, though he has maintained contact with Russia and hasn't condemned it. The Chinese have not really publicly condemned the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, there still is some partnership. There is, as the State Department suggested this week, perhaps some weapons. We haven't seen that intelligence. Uh, so I, I think that's going to be a big focus right now because there are, I think, somewhat unfounded fears, but there are real fears about China watching what's going on and saying, should we invade Taiwan or not? And I think the U.S. really needs to make some smart choices on how to deter China, lest you know there be a, a another global conflict in mm-hmm. the midst. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with uh, Jonathan Geyer. Uh, he covers foreign policy, national security, and global affairs for Vox. He's been writing a lot about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which uh, celebrates a pretty. Uh, macabre one-year anniversary tomorrow. Uh, President Biden uh, was in the region this week, kind of flexing a little bit of U.S. muscle, saying that we would uh, do what needed to be done to protect Ukraine and and that we would be with them as long as they needed us. Uh, President Vladimir Putin also uh, showing some strength this week, uh, talking about uh, an alliance with China that he hopes will grow in order to help the Russians a little more uh, in their effort. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Are you somebody who has been personally affected by the war in Ukraine? This is, of course, a part of the world where we have many folks from that part of the world, uh, either people who have come recently or people who have been here a really long time. Tell us your story. Uh, Tell us what's happening to relatives or friends that you still have uh, in in the Ukraine and in that region. Uh, also, give us a sense uh, if you're someone who supports the American and the Western effort to support Ukraine. Uh, do you think we should be doing what we're doing? Do you think we should be doing more? Uh, do you think we should be giving direct military aid to, uh, to to Ukraine or more of it. Um, are you someone on the other side who maybe thinks this is something we ought to stay out of, uh, that uh, this is about that region and not about us? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you uh, into the conversation that way. Uh, Jonathan, I wonder what you imagine the solution here is and how it will be reached. Is this something that is going to just have to be fought out until one side literally loses? Uh, or is there a diplomatic solution that could take hold of both sides and uh, let everybody kind of save maybe a little a little face uh, as the Russians maybe exit Ukraine. 
There will need to be negotiations at some point. Neither side, the Russians nor the Ukrainians, are ready for that. But, you know, diplomats tell me it takes time to table set for negotiations. It can take months and years. So I would really hope that the Biden administration and European partners and allies are already kind of setting up the contours of what a diplomatic agreement would look like. But the three things I'll be watching for, Stephen, are the extent to which war fatigue is going to affect the way Americans like you and me think about the war. We have House Republicans that are really rallying against uh, increased billions of dollars of aid for Ukraine. So the way Americans perceive this war is going to be really important into the framework of how it ends. I'm also really concerned about how brazen and risky Vladimir Putin's willing to be. I mean, pulling out of a nuclear agreement is very escalatory. I don't think he is going to use nuclear weapons in the short term, but just even a small risk of that is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, and to your point, I think the third thing to think about is what does winning look like for Ukraine? I mean, they've clearly in this past year won to some extent strategically exposing Russia to defeat on some level. But if you're a Ukrainian, you know, your, your energy infrastructure is being attacked right now. It is a huge tragedy uh, for my friends who are journalists who've been reporting from there, incredibly brave, telling the stories of Ukrainians. So it's not clear what winning would look like for Ukraine. And those are the kind of questions diplomats will be thinking about as they start hashing out, you know, not even the negotiations, but the negotiations about what those negotiations might look like. <laughs> right, right. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you make of the war in Ukraine one year into it. Uh, I want to start today with uh, Dr. Olana Daniluk, who is the vice president of the Ukrainian American Civic Committee, uh, Ukrainian American Crisis Response Committee of Metropolitan Detroit. She grew up in western Ukraine and now lives here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, Dr. Donnie Luke, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, and thank you so much for inviting me. Sure. So uh, tell us how the war is affecting Ukrainians here in Michigan on the eve of this one-year anniversary uh, of the invasion. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine, if I had ties to that region, how tense this 12 months uh, would have been and and how worried I would be about the people I knew um, in that region. Um, give us a sense of how that's going. Uh, I just want to remind that war started in 2014 because right. it's, uh, one year is a full escalation invasion. But in 2014, when Crimea was annexed and uh, Eastern conflict uh, started when Russia really started inviting Ukraine at that time. So since 2014, our community uh, is um, trying to, like, helping Ukraine and trying just to do everything possible here in the United States to protect Ukraine. But yes, from last February 24th, when full-scale invasion war broke up, we are, since that time, uh, Ukrainian community is every single day trying to help, uh, support, uh, fight, advocate, bring to to awareness and and help in all capacity how we could just uh, stop this war and for since that time uh, the organizations are trying to uh, to collect any aid uh, medical aid uh, supplies uh, we have as you as you mentioned crisis response committee formed which organized 
like all Ukrainian organizations here in Michigan and also in all in all countries, uh, those active groups uh, were trying to coordinate our efforts for helping Ukraine. And uh, it's very important that we have to advocate and properly bring necessary information. And all communities thankful United States and people who helping us understand. And we understand that it's one year. It's not a short time. Mm-hmm. So, and it's still we don't see the end of this war. And us uh, and Putin is encroaching in Ukraine, and he and his idea is to take over Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And we understand that we because we couldn't lose Ukraine, we couldn't let Ukraine uh, like happen to to be taken by uh, Russia again, and uh, you know and and destroy Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian identity. Sure. So, so, so I I I, I want to have you address people who would respond to what you just said by saying this is the reason that America should maybe not be involved, that this is a really long-running conflict. There is not a clear solution to it. Um, and for that reason, we ought to, we ought to kind of pull back and, and stay out of it. What's the reason that you would say that's uh, not the, the, the approach we should take? As you know, that Ukraine is the largest country in Europe. And Ukraine also is one of the oldest European democracies. Like with the first democratic constitution, branches of government, separation of church and state, it's 77 years even before America is own. So, and once you and when Ukraine reclaimed in independence in 1991, and with collapse of uh, Soviet Union, the um, United States declared that they won the Cold War, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And um, also, Ukraine gave away all their nuclear weapon arsenal. And Ukraine was open to join European countries. And uh, you also remember about Budapest Memorandum. Yes, this unlucky Budapest Memorandum when Ukraine was completely disarmed. And uh, Ukrainian government were following up with rules and collaborational agreements between all countries to join uh, democratic countries. And that's right now when Putin, and Putin knew that Ukraine is completely disarmed. Mm-hmm that we were not able to fight uh, back. And he also knows that during all those 30 years, he was, uh, he, he was trying to take over our factories. Uh, you know, just it was a lot of, um, specifically for uh, when Yanukovych was as a president, that's where a lot of takeovers of, um, of infrastructures. So as the so United States, have an obligation to help Ukraine mm-hmm. and to, to protect us if you if you want to protect democracy in the whole world yeah. because as, as right now Ukraine is protecting whole world from uh, full-scale Russian invasion for full world yeah uh, g- next countries would be falling down uh, can you also give us a sense of how people here in this region can help Ukrainians at this time. What if you're if you're somebody who's concerned about uh, the humanitarian crisis in the region in particular? What would you do? So first, because uh, a lot of relatives and families are uh, are displaced, so we would be creating. Michigan should create a more welcoming program for Ukrainian parolees 
Because as you know, Ukrainians are not a refugee. They coming on a sponsorship model. So Ukrainians are sponsoring, uh, sponsoring uh, parolees coming here in Michigan. And it's very hard to find uh, housing facilities. Um, help them to accommodate. Yes, state and government are open. So uh, multiple programs, like Samaritan's program, they open their doors and they uh, created specific programs to help uh, create all documents, uh, get uh, faster uh, rights for work. But with housing, uh, it's, it's a lot of, and finding a job and also ECL lectures, that, uh, that's where we should concentrate uh, health issues um, we have to concentrate to help refugees and parolees here in Michigan. Also, for Ukraine, we have to still keep to be consistent to send uh, medical aid, um, support to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Because as for right now, after one year, everyone is exhausted and everyone is depleted in their funds. But we understand that in Ukraine, they have power outage, they have uh, they have many displaced persons, they have uh, devastated schools, buildings, so they are in desperate need for help. And specifically, right now, it's a winter season, so like it's, 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 we have to st- keep steady, continuous supply yeah. with using all leverage and all possibilities what we can. Sure. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Dani Luke, I really want to thank you for calling in and being part uh, of, of the discussion here. Uh, as, I, as I said at the open, uh, Ukraine is in a part of the world that uh, has real ties to here in uh, Metro Detroit. And, of course, we, uh, we hope that, uh, that things get better and that uh, we're able to take care of the folks there who have been so disrupted. Thank you so much uh, for calling in. Thank you so much. Thank mm-hmm. you. So, uh, Jonathan Geyer, before uh, before I have to take a break, I want to quickly get you to talk about what's next. Uh, this anniversary is tomorrow. Uh, how soon do we see things move in a better position or maybe uh, in a worse one? Well, I think the tragedy here is this is going to go on. I'm One expert told me that once a war goes on for more than a year, it's likely to go up for to a decade. Mm-hmm. So, oh my goodness. I mean... I think is what Dr. Danny Luke said, what's at stake is is peace in Europe and American partners and allies. And the Biden administration has certainly said this is all about the fight for democracy. But for now, it's it's the fight to maintain Ukraine's sovereignty and, and just to dig in the trenches because each side is preparing an offensive this spring. And it's very likely to continue to be gruesome and, and the human toll just really hard to fathom somewhere in Europe. I mean, of course, the U.S. has been involved in these forever wars in the Middle East and Afghanistan for two decades, but those were always a little bit at arm's length. Mm-hmm. And now we have a, a kind of really brutal war in Europe that's reminding us, you know, beyond the stakes in Europe, just what can the United States do to avert war? Yeah. I don't have the answer to that. Yeah. Okay, uh, Jonathan Geyer of Vox, uh, really great to have your voice in this discussion as well. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. When we come back, we are going to talk about 
foreign sanctions, including their impact on this war between Russia and the Ukraine, and whether they are a good thing. We're going to have two different voices, one in favor of sanctions and maybe more, and another that believes that's not the way to pressure Russia to do the right thing. Also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can go to Twitter and hashtag us as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined us today. Think back to when the invasion of Ukraine happened almost a year ago today and how reluctant the United States was to really get involved. While President Zelensky requested American and Western assistance to do things like, quote, close the skies and create no-fly zones over his country, while also providing long-range missiles capable of striking Russia, President Biden refused to go that far, citing the risk of potentially starting a third world war if American plans started firing on Russian planes. Instead, a tool the United States opted to use even before the conflict started was economic sanctions. But what exactly are economic sanctions? What are their goals? And what is the human cost of economic sanctions? Are they worth it? And are they effective at moving a government, even a government like that of Vladimir Putin in Russia, to a better state of behavior? That's where we want to continue the conversation here as we get ready to mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine tomorrow. What is the role of economic sanctions in this conversation and whether that can actually move the ball in this conflict. We've got a really interesting set of guests for this as well. I'm joined by Christine McDaniel, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center. She is the author of a piece titled Economic Sanctions as a Foreign Policy Instrument, the Case of Russia. She is in favor of these sanctions against Russia. Christine, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Also with us is someone who has made the case against sanctions. Simon Constable is a fellow at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise. A year ago, he wrote a piece in Time that was titled, Why Sanctions on Russia Won't Work. Simon Constable, welcome to Detroit Today. I think we have Simon there with us. Uh, Christine, I am going to start with you. Let's uh, talk a little bit about what economic sanctions are and why you think they work and why you think they work in particular in this instance. Sure, Stephen. So, uh, first of all, I think it's kind of important to, um, to put this in context 
right? So there are different types of sanctions, and economic sanctions is just one type that countries um, have um, have been using for well for a very long time. The um, the sport the sports sanctions, uh, right? So one country does something another country doesn't like, and the um, the country that um, you know, doesn't like what the other country did. Says, well, you know, we're not, we're not sending our our um, our athletes to to a particular you know sports game. Mm-hmm. There's diplomatic sanctions, saying, oh well, you know, we're we're uh, withdrawing our embassy staff. Um, or there's travel bans, saying, well, you you can no longer send your people here. Economic sanctions, which is what we're going to talk about today, and then of course military sanctions. So, um, and I listed those in the order of severity. Uh, you know, economic sanctions uh, tend to be used where, uh, when the, um, the the sender country, if you will, uh, feels strongly enough um, about something, um, where they want to uh, invoke change or uh, deter future behavior. Um, but so you know, stronger than they would. Uh, if you know if they were just going to do diplomatic sanctions or something, but not strong enough where they're going to engage militarily. So just to kind of you know keep that in in context there, mm-hmm. right? But economic sanctions are are basically think of it like this: you're you're basically you're trying to restrict the flows of goods, services, capital, access to financial assets, uh, you know, to to those individuals and entities that are engaged in the behavior that um, you don't like, right? So um, you're basically just trying to restrict their access to assets, restrict their ability to continue with with their offending behavior. Mm-hmm. So, so why do you believe this is an effective tool to use on the international stage? And why do you think that they are the right tool for Russia in response to its invasion of the Ukraine? Well, uh, they, so they, um, I mean, the argument uh, for using them is, um, you know, is, is largely a foreign, foreign policy argument. Um, you know, I come at this from, I'm an economist, but the um, one largely misunderstood thing about uh, sanctions, especially economic sanctions, is, you know, what does it mean for them to be effective, right? The... Um, yeah, I talked to this one former um, chief economist at State Department, and she told me, you know, the um, pol- you know policymakers want a slam dunk, but <laughs> you often don't get a slam dunk with economic sanctions. Um, but what you can do is you can limit uh, the flow of resources, right? So the the goal of these sanctions is to limit the target's access to resources, and then attempt to change their behavior. And to that extent. The, um, to the extent that the United States and Europe and, and, and many other countries uh, have uh, coordinated, they have been able to begin to limit the, um, the flow of, of money and resources, supplies to entities and individuals you know, in Russia that are engaged in this war on Ukraine. So... Um, so, you know, we just have to be clear, though, you know, what the goal of the economic sanctions are. Mm-hmm. Another thing is economic sanctions, that's just one part of a much bigger um, toolkit that the U.S. and in and, and Europe and uh, the West has uh, engaged in this effort. 
right? So, um, so I think it's just really important to keep all this in context, Stephen. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Simon Constable, I'd love to bring you into the conversation here. Uh, you're more skeptical of this tool and uh, its effect. Tell me why and then uh, apply what you're saying to uh, to the, the Russian situation we have right now. Well, uh, finally, I'm on. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yes. So first of all, the, the, the invasion of Ukraine was, was un, unwarranted, unprovoked, and awful. I mean, it's just an awful situation, and it, it needs to be solved. However, I think, I think sanctions are probably the wrong way, and it all depends on what the sanctions are meant for. And I think a lot of politicians think if they, if they show sanctions, it's kind of like virtue signaling. Oh, I'm, vir I'm a virtuous country. I'm going to sanction Russia. And that'll show how awesome I am. And in that sense, it works. It works for the domestic population in the U.S. and um, all the European countries that sanctioned Russia. And that's a thumbs up. If the goal is to stop the Kremlin doing anything in, in Ukraine, then it clearly hasn't happened. In fact, the opposite has happened. Mm -hmm. um, the Kremlin has knuckled down. Um, Put up all the, um, you know, pulled up all the drawbridges, put down the portcullis, and they're basically digging in for a very long-term fight. They've gotten more troops conscripted, they're sending more troops, and they're doing all that. Nothing has changed in the Kremlin's attitude, and we can see other examples of this through history. Um, nothing's happened with Cuba. Cuba's been under sanctions for a, you know, a gazillion years, certainly since before I was born. Venezuela's been under sanctions. It hasn't changed. It's it's not um, turning into a democracy. Um, it's not having freedoms. And there are many other countries like that. And what, what tends to happen is that when a when a country gets sanctioned, um, as opposed to individuals, the entire country tends to hunker down and, and pull together against the enemy. Um, and, and think of it like uh, Britain under siege from, from sort of the potential of German invasion in, you know, in 1940. Uh, which was, you know, the, the beginning, you know, near the beginning of the first, uh, sorry, the Second World War. The the British just hunkered together and, you know, they were getting bombed every day. So I think that is part of the problem is it's not working. It was also not stopping the Russians sell any oil at all. They're mm -hmm. just selling it to other people. Oil leaks out um, saying, you know, we can't do business with them doesn't mean the whole world can't do business with the Russians. Uh, I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying it is what it is. Yeah. So, you know, um, that that doesn't really work. And in fact, it's very hard to stop capital moving across borders. China has currency controls. And yet a few years ago in, in a little... I think we have lost Simon's sound again, just as he was getting going uh, with his arguments about why... Sanctions are not working. I want to come back to you, uh, Christine. I, I, I want to talk specifically about the effectiveness, though, that, that uh, he's critical of here. Cuba is a great example, I think, of a place that, uh, that has been under sanction for a long time. And we haven't really seen, uh, we haven't really seen that, that issue move. Our, 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 our dislike of Cuba's just about as intense now as it used to be. So, so what is the difference, I guess, between a situation like that and what you would say is happening uh, with Russia? Well, yeah, so, I mean, Simon has a good point. I mean, there's a lot of uh, cases out there where we have 
um, implemented sanctions and it uh, does not invoke the the change in behavior that you know we we seek. Um, there are also examples of you know where we've imposed sanctions um, and it it does um, facilitate a change in behavior. Um, we, I mean, Cuba is is you know in a, in a way an isolated um, incident in the sense that you know it's one country. Um, it's affecting, um, you know, what what the leaders of Cuba do. It really only affects Cuba. In the case of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, this is a this is one country in, uh, invading another sovereign country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's not only just one country. It's it, you know, it's it's an authoritarian uh, regime invading a democratic regime, and the United States and other Western um, uh, dem- uh, countries and other democracies around the world have um, basically risen up and stood together and said, you know, hey, you know, no, you, you can't do that, and we're not going to stand by and watch you do it. We're not going, you know, we're not going to go to nuclear war um, on day one over it, but we're also not going to just stop, stand by, and, and, and do nothing, right? So you have to think I, of the counterfactual. Yeah. Sure. Go ahead, Simon. Can I, can I jump in? This hasn't stopped Russia. Russia's a major oil producer. We know this. It was uh, 10 million barrels a day. And they haven't stopped pumping oil and being able to sell it. Um, they may have got slightly reduced prices, but they're selling something to India and, and a lot of Asia. That hasn't stopped. The money's still rolling in. People are still buying it. And other people are sort of, if you like, greenwashing it by, by selling it to a middle a middleman or a middle woman and um, it getting resold on and it gets back into the global system. That has not altered anything on that front. And, you know, if it would, if it would alter anything, I'd be like, yeah, that's great. But I don't see any evidence of of anything in the fr- the Kremlin changing. In fact, if anything, they're just getting worse. They're like, well, we'll send new recruits off to be, be cannon fodder. Mm. So what's the answer to that, Christine? Well, so we're talking about economic sanctions, and in terms of the economic sanctions, we have seen some effects, right? Russia's GDP has evolved. It's now down to uh, 5.6% drop forecasted for this year. Um, while, yes, they are selling oil to other places, um, at, you know, they're, they're not selling it to uh, particular countries that are aligned in this effort. Um, you know, but people, you know, you, it's not, you can't expect um, economic sanctions alone to change Russia's mind. I don't think anybody went but, into but this thinking, oh, if, we if just the, put some economic I, sanctions on and, oh, Putin's going to change his mind. I mean, nobody thought that. Um, this is just one piece of a larger effort. So, again, we have to keep but, this but in if, context. If, if, the, if the goal was to crush the economy, it's... it's it's certainly done that that partially, and that, that's that's a goal. But I see not even a twinkling of a change there. Uh, it, it's 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 really it's it's really strange. I mean, that anyone would think these work in a way that actually sways any opinion. I mean, you almost um, would have it, to. I mean, you almost would have to. I guess isolate the Russian economy in a way that 
unilateral sanctions from you know the United States and and maybe a few allies probably doesn't. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this really interesting conversation uh, with uh, Christine McDaniel and Simon Constable. I want to get you guys going in it as well. Give us a call. Let us know what you make of the situation in Ukraine one year after the Russians invaded. Uh, do you think sanctions are the way? to resolve the, the Russian aggression? Do you think there are other things we should be doing? 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined us. We're talking with Christine McDaniel, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center, as well as Simon Constable, fellow at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise. Uh, We're talking specifically right now about sanctions against Russia and whether they are an effective tool to get them to stop their invasion of Ukraine. Uh, We've also been just talking this hour about the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion, which is tomorrow. President Biden was in the region this week uh, flexing a little American muscle, saying that uh, we'll do what it takes for as long as it takes to protect Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin, who leads Russia, is also talking pretty tough, saying that uh, the Russians may turn to China uh, to get more involved in this uh, in this issue. We want to hear from you as well. Give us a call and what, uh, to let us know what you make of the war in Ukraine one year on. Also, what you make of the economic sanctions and that dimension of uh, the war. Is it effective? Is it making a difference uh, right now? Or is it something that we ought to be kind of uh, thinking Maybe it's one tool in the toolbox, and there are some other things that we maybe need to do as well. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Professor Simmons says on Twitter, economic sanctions are backfiring on the U.S. and NATO, driving global oil consumers into the Russian camp and contributing to the rapid flight of many nations away from the U.S. dollar. With all that implies, uh, he continues that any U.S. domestic benefits of sanctions are only a temporary feel-good measure, and they have long-term negative consequences uh, for the economy. Christine, uh, I'll give you a first shot at at answering Professor Simmons. So, yeah, so... there's not there's economic aspects to this and non-economic aspects to this. Okay, and I mean in terms of the non-economic aspects, I think that's what he might be getting to. And you know, the um, I mean, that's really up to the American public and and how many resources how many resources you know they want to expend on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, so far you know about uh, we spend about less than ten percent of the entire Pentagon's budget, and you know one could argue that um, that's done more to uh, to to disable. Putin's ability to continue as status quo than the U.S. Uh, and the West has been able to do in the last, you know, 20 years. So, um, but 
in terms of the effectiveness of the sanctions, I mean, it's, it's very clear, uh, just in terms of the economic sanctions. I mean, the financial flows to Russia have dried up. Uh, Russia's technology sectors have been hit by loss of imports. Um, Russia's export-oriented sectors have suffered. Um, and, you know, hundreds of uh, foreign companies have left Russia. Um, has that changed Putin's decision about Ukraine? No, right? But that was, that's, that's never the, um, nobody thought, again, nobody thought that, you know, just these economic sanctions alone would do that. Hmm. Uh, Simon, Constable, what do you think of this idea? Well, I, 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 as, you, as you know, I, I think they're, they're not they're not really working. I think one one of the issues is that, um, and I've listened to a lot of, of experts on this, is that the the, the, the tyrant that is Putin needs an off ramp. Um, he needs a way to get off this without getting killed. And I, as far as I know, no one's presented um, him with that. Is if, if you if you do this, then you can live in uh, you know in exile somewhere. You know who knows where that will be. Um, it's um, certainly won't be Maryland or or Michigan, but it might be somewhere, and then he can get the off ramp. But at the, the moment, it's sort of he's he's got to win or or not or not win, and then likely get ousted and possibly assassinated uh, with with that uh, with that ousting. Now, I so you really think the stakes? You think the stakes for Putin are 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 that high? Yes, I'm, that's that's what I'm uh, that's what I'm thinking. Mm. I mean, it's it's there's a long tradition. Um, if you go back to Soviet times, and remember, that's when that's when uh, Vladimir Putin was trained mm-hmm. during the, the, the Soviet Empire. Um, they they often got rid of their leaders by um, by shooting them, um, you know, or murder, murdering them. That's how the, the leaders you know went out. Um, certainly at the very beginning of it, mm-hmm. and certainly people were exiled a lot. Um, you know, it, this is not a democracy we're talking about a democracy is where you you know you might get voted out of office and then you know people will say well good 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 attempt um, you know good attempt simon but we'll uh, <laughs> but we don't need you anymore for doing that role and you can go write your memoirs that i don't think that really happens so much in um, in undemocratic countries i mean you know it might be it might be political exile it might be you know prison whatever it is I'm. I'm not sure. I know that Russia is a pretty harsh place for for its leaders, and it has been historically. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number. Let's go to Mike in Gross Point. Mike, what's on your mind? Good morning, Stephen. Hey. So I think that the invasion of Ukraine is part of a much larger play that's taking place, and that's uh, involving the unity between Russia and China. And it's not a mistake that Putin went to visit Russia or China just before the invasion. I think Russia and China are testing Western resolve regarding, um, you know, this is just like a little litmus test, Mm -hmm. I would say. They want to see how far they can push the West. And I, I, I like to remind you that back in 72, it was Richard Nixon who went to China with the blessing of the Republican Party, opened up America's wallet to China, and 50 years later, after we built them economically, instead of uh, holding our hand and singing Kumbaya, they're going throughout the world, uh, spreading their influence, particularly places like Africa, India, South America, and Asia. And, um, you know, I think that um, 
they have a goal, and mm. so does Putin, and they're they're testing the West. And yeah. remarkably, people on yeah, yeah, Mike, Mike, I I really appreciate the call and the and the point. Uh, we're going to run out of time pretty quickly, can, but I want to get the, can I jump in on this? Go ahead, Simon. Can I jump in? Yeah, yeah. Th- this is very interesting because it, I think it goes back to the the Arab Spring, and you may remember President Obama saying at the time, I, I'm, "I'm drawing a red line," and if 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 Assad passes this line, then, then there will be consequences. Mm-hmm. So Assad immediately ran up to the line and stepped over it and nothing <laughs> happened. Right. And that was only a few years before um, Russia invaded um, Crimea. And Russia has got to have thought, oh, this is great. Um, you know, President Obama makes threats and then they don't happen. So I'll just have I'll just have Crimea back um, in his mind. It's getting it back from from the old Russian Empire. And then, you know, doing and then doing this again and saying, well, OK, what, what are the consequences? And and apparently this time the consequences are a bit more. But um, you, you, if you're going to be if you're going to be firm, if you if you threaten consequences, it's like telling the kid, you know, you know, don't you know, don't come to the table with dirty hands. You've got to wash your hands before you eat and you've got to enforce that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't enforced. And countries in geopolitics, they remember this sort of stuff. And that was a, 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 a pivotal form of weakness by the U.S. government. And it's very sad. Mm. Uh, Christine, what do you make of what uh, Mike's saying about our resolve and how strong it is? And I guess how we prove how strong that resolve is. Yeah, I mean, look, everything that's, I, I totally agree with, <clears throat> with, um, with Simon. I mean, that was, uh, that was in, in some ways a pivotal moment when, um, when Obama drew the line in the sand and then they crossed it and we didn't do anything. But, um, but look, I mean, and, and he's actually spoken about that in, in hindsight, you know, 2020 hindsight. But, um, I think one thing that surprised so many, uh, people around the world is, um, here we are in 2022, 2023, where you know, everyone's talking about the fracturing of, you know, the liberal order. And yet, here we see the, the West unite in a way that I would never have imagined, hmm. right, over this. Um, I mean, in a way, I mean, Putin has done more to unite NATO countries than, I mean, than I think he could have ever um, been scared of doing, Um Germany is now upping their share of GDP spent on military in ways that never would have uh, been thought of. Uh, now Japan is is also um, starting to pivot more toward uh, you know reallocating sure. their expenditures toward uh, defense and military in general. Um, so this has, I think, been a real wake up call. But you know, again, you got you have you guys have to think of the counterfactual. What would have happened if we would not have done anything? Right. So. Um, and that's, I know that's hard to do mentally. It's hard for me to do sometimes, but you've got to think of the counterfactual. Um, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, of course they can just get oil from someplace else. This isn't doing anything. But, you know, I mean, I, I, you, again, what would have happened if, if the West would have done nothing? Yeah. Um, where, where would we be? And that's, you know, that's a hard question. I don't know the answer to that, but I have a feeling it's, it's, it would be someplace that we wouldn't like. Yeah. So, so quickly, Simon, we've only got about 30 seconds left. What would you do instead of sanctions? 
Well, I, I think everybody has to beef up. I mean, I think we have to look back and say, what should countries do? Countries should have solid defenses in place and not rely on being rescued. Um, you know, and it would have been would have been better for Ukraine to have more defenses. It will be better for all European countries to beef up their defense industries massively just so they don't have to use it. You know, you don't go into a nightclub when there's a huge bouncer on the door and cause trouble, right? Yeah. So get your huge bouncer in line. <laughs> America's got it. Europe needs it. And mm. um, as a European, I, I would, you know, and, and an American, I would say you have to do, you have to do it now. You have to and, do it um, now. Yeah. Chop, chop, you know. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Christine McDaniel and Simon Constable, really great to have both of you here for this conversation. Thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when Atlantic journalist Megan Garber makes the case that our constant need for entertainment has blurred the line between fiction and reality. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>